good to be here. Um, if you've got a Bible, Colossians 3 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. Um, as Joel just said, we're continuing a series in Colossians. We've been in this book for quite some time now. And uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 to give us our context for our time. Um, so verse 1, it says this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 5 is going to be kind of where we spend most of our time and in the second half of it, where it says, and greed, which is idolatry. Randy, uh, about two weeks ago, kind of set this up, and he really invited us to begin to kind of narrow the focus on the fact that Paul's inviting us to put, he's, he's actually calling us to put different sinful aspects of our earthly nature actually to death. And he encourages us that the capacity to do that, that the power to actually do that, is what we find very, very clearly laid out in verses 1 through 4. That it's in the setting of our hearts, and the setting of our minds, upon Christ, what has happened for us as a result of Christ, who we are now, life, our life is now hidden with him. Uh, it's from that place that we now have access to a power to put things to death. And these things, and Joel talked about it pretty adequately last week, some of these things are things that dominate the landscape of our lives. Joel talked about the difficult and sensitive topic of sexuality, what it looks like to put to death sexuality in its unbiblical forms. Today we're going to be looking at the specific issue of greed and Paul's conclusion that all of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, they are in fact forms of idolatry. So uh, let me start us off by asking this question. Does it strike you odd that greed is the only other thing in this list other than sexual sin? Why would that be? I mean, certainly there are a lot of other things that we could say these are forms, or we can see forms of idolatry. And why does he have this kind of strong list, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed? Why is greed at the end? As I studied this, and I'm inviting you guys, all of us, to lean into this. Pay close attention to the order of what Paul's doing here. Because I'm convinced that he's getting at something. He's driving at something very, very crucial. When I was thinking about this, praying about it, uh, something came to mind. It's something I read a while ago. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote an uh, essay called The Weight of Glory. And I think what Paul is driving at, I'm going to try to get to it through talking uh, metaphorically with what Lewis talked about. Uh, and Lewis refers to it as a spell. Like, a magical spell, like in fairy tales, that a spell has been cast. And he, Lewis suggests something in this essay. He says that you and I literally live as beings on this earth under a spell that has been cast on us. And that as a result of this spell that we've become so numb 
to the depth of our desire that we're unable to see things for what they really are. We've literally become that numb to the profundity of our desire. So I'm gonna read you something from Way to Glory here because Lewis is trying to wake us up by casting his own spell. He says, do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as inducing them. And you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education, everything you and I are brought up in this culture has been directed at silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. This is the spell that I believe Paul is exposing. One of the spells that we live under in this list of things that ends in greed, which is idolatry. The spell that the good of man is to be found on this earth. That the depth of your desire is actually able to be satisfied this side of eternity and outside of God. That's the spell. The spell has got to be broken. And this is what I hope in our time this morning we'll get to. How in the world does this spell get broken? We're going to try to show it. There's an Audi commercial out. I don't know if you watch TV. I've been watching the Olympics incessantly. I wish I lived in Canada where they have 24-hour coverage. Um, but Audi has got a new set of commercials in it. Uh, if, we could, if you could, I would encourage you to go look at it. It's called The Spell. If you just type in Audi, The Spell. It's a one-minute commercial, and it begins with this little boy sitting on his bed, and he's looking at this picture of a Ferrari poster on his wall, and he says this. He says, I've been told to desire a red Italian sports car. And then it goes to a soccer mom, and she's standing outside of her Lexus, and she says, I've been told beige and predictable fits my lifestyle. And then two businessmen are walking out to their identical matching Mercedes, and they say, I've been told hollow status symbols are the goal of life. <laughs> and then it's an old dude who's with his wife in a golf cart and their Lexus, and he says, I've been told, they're like at the golf course, I've been told this is the way to retire. And then this kind of rascal, flatty musician, washed up dude with some wife who looks like she's been under the knife for like 47 hours, uh, <laughs> says this. He's standing in front of like this red, just beautiful sports car, and he says, I've been told it captures my essence. And then the girl says, and the neighbors will really be jealous. <laughs> and then all these Audis start driving by, and it's like they kind of like, they wake up because the Audi has, it's come to save them from the spell of BMW and Mercedes. And, and we laugh about it, and, but it's, it's kind of the way we do it, isn't it? Like, okay, yeah, I can see I'm under the spell of wanting this or wanting that. But really all that ever moves me out of the spell of that is something else, something I desire more or should desire more. But oftentimes, it's just like that. It's like, well, it's not just this car. It's, it's, a, it's a better car, but it's, it's still a car, right? Like, it's just an, a, a different car. 
We need to wake up from the spell. You see, when I sin, there is always something underneath my action. A root heart motivation. And my root heart motivations, oftentimes, they are informed and directed by the spell the world has cast, not by the gospel. And those things, they drive at something. And what they drive at is, is that if I have this thing, if I possess this thing, if I get whatever it is, money, them, her, him, it, if I get it, it will ultimately change how I feel about myself on the deepest levels. That's why that guy, the Rascal Flats guy, is so perfect. They tell me, they told me it's my essence. Essence is a word for like identity. This is the very center of my being, is this car. <laughs> but it's you and it's me. Paul's going something for something very crucial here. And I'd encourage you to lean into the list, into the progression. He is walking us into the depth of our hearts through this list. He's leading us to the most fundamental root of what lies behind sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, evil desire. He's going for the heart of the matter. And that should encourage you because I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this morning, God is interested in your heart, not your behavior. If he gets a hold of your heart, your behavior will follow. If he just gets a hold of your behavior, he's not interested in that. So here's the root. Greed is not an issue of money, it's an issue of more. And therefore, we are all in the same boat because some of you actually believe you don't deal with greed because I don't believe it. I don't, I'm not really, I'm greedy's not my issue. It's this. I think Paul's inviting us to understand greedy is all of our issue. I want more, and here's what I want you to ask this question this morning. More of what? What do you want more of? You see, money is a very easy target. If we just stop there and say greed is about money, then we're missing something massive. Because scripture, I don't even have to preach on this. I'll read you a few verses. It makes it very, very clear here why money and greed, he just deals with it. First Timothy 6, 6 says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and we have clothing, we will be content with that. Are you content this morning? I mean, everyone in here has clothes on. I don't see anybody naked. And I know for a fact that we have food here, so I don't think anybody's going hungry, especially me, because patience brought me a cinnamon roll. She knows are my favorite. I'm just gonna take a moment and eat this, so. Um, <laughs> But listen to this in verse 9 of of 1 Timothy 6. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's clear here, guys. Money is a serious issue. That, it, that the love of it, that our affections, if our desire becomes attached to it, it plunges us into harmful desires, into ruin, into destruction. That it's the root of a lot of kinds of evil. 
it causes us to wander and pierce ourselves with grief. But I think Paul's even going somewhere further than money. And we talked about this. If you actually listen to a sermon, literally a month or so ago, I preached a sermon here in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 20, it talked about fullness in Christ. And I asked this that morning, are you full? Do you believe? Because scripture tells you in 2 verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ who is head over every power and authority. Scripture is saying you're full. You've got what you desire. Now you and I, and this is what our life's journeys are marked by as Christ followers, understanding, unearthing the depth of what it means that I've got everything I desire. If I'm just honest, I don't know how to live in that. I don't live in that. Colossians 2.20 says this, since we died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rule? And we talked about this. I don't know if you don't remember, go back and listen to it. If you do remember, we talked about what is one of the basic principles. And I think Paul is, he's bringing it back around. It's a boomerang. He said it in chapter two, now he's saying it in three. The basic principle of addition is how I termed it last time I preached. This is one of the spells that you and I are under. That you must add something to your life to be full. That fullness is not something you have, it's something you have yet to receive. And so our lives are marked by the incessant grasping for something else to make me feel and be full. You see, greed is at the end of this list because it speaks to the heart of the issue when it comes to sexual immorality and lust and evil desires and impurities. It speaks to the root of the things preceding it. It's bringing us into a fuller view of the basic principle of addition. It's another way of saying you're still under the spell. Wake up from the spell. When our eyes are set on the truth, like he invites us in verses one through four of chapter three, of who we are now in Christ, you and I stop living lives of more. That, that life is all about getting fill in the blank. If I gave you a magic marker right now and I said start writing on the walls, what you believe if you had more of then you would feel alive, you would feel full, life would be rich. You know how many, we would not have enough space. In fact, probably just this section over here could fill up this entire chapel. We'd have to find more room for the rest of us to write. John MacArthur in his commentary on Colossians says it like this, covetousness, which is another word for greed, is the root cause of all sin. Eesh. He states, Paul mentions greed last because it is the root evil from which all of the previous sins spring. The Greek word for this is pleonexia. Two words, pleon, which means more, exo, which means to have. And William Barclay says this, this is a great sentence. So to have more, this is the actual Greek meaning of this word. It is therefore a sin with a very wide range. <laughs> it's like saying gravity affects stuff. <laughs> it's that broad, guys. We're all in this together. You are not exempt 
from greed. You see, it's a danger if we limit this term strictly to money or even to the gaining of material possession, which is, it's our cultural way of not having to deal with it. Because when we do this, it keeps us from understanding and having to grapple with the heart of the issue. And here it is, I'll say it again, I want more. And my life, if you were to observe my life from the outside, you would be able to build a list. My life is marked by the pursuit of what I believe will actually satisfy that desire. David Clarkson, who was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s, says, though few will own it, nothing is more common. <laughs> will you own it this morning? I'd encourage you to own it. Because there's something, and we're going to get to it here in a second, there's something I want you to understand, I believe the Lord wants us to understand, is that, that the fact that you want more is a good thing. It's the object that that desire is attached to that breaks our hearts, that even breaks the Lord's heart. So we're all greedy. Maybe the list in front of your greed isn't sexual immorality. Maybe it's honor and glory. Maybe it's material possessions. Maybe it is money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's control. Whatever the list is, we all want more. Some of you know I've picked up golf this last year. Joel and others tease me about this, and they're right. Um, you would think I'm like competing for a tour card when I'm on the golf course. I can't let go. Like, I, golf has, I have not picked up golf. Golf has picked up me and body slammed me um, with its deep expectations. And uh, I'm never satisfied. I'll hit the best drive of the day for me, and it's still 25 yards short of Chad's, and that's what I'll remember about it. Um, I scored the best score of my life, and what do I think about? Oh, the putt on 14 that lipped out. Better equipment. I spend way too much time hunting on Craigslist for people who spent their money on something that they thought they wanted but now realize they need the cash more than they need the golf club. And their loss is my gain. <laughs> These are very easy things to see, y'all. Y'all could do that. Let me talk about something else. How about affirmation? Do you think that I don't want every single one of you to come up to me after this and tell me that this was good? Or that the work with small groups that I'm doing, oh, moving in the right direction, good work. How many of you will it take telling me that this sermon was good for it to be enough for me? 20 of you? 30 of you? What if all of you told me and it still wasn't enough? What if I still went home and wondered? You see, if it's never enough, and it isn't, is it? If we constantly find ourselves in search of more, this is where it gets good. Shouldn't that teach us something about ourselves? About our world? About the nature of our desire? That you and I want more. But more of what? Twelve Southers go on the journey of understanding that what you want, the more of what, is not something that you can find the answer to within yourself. Who gets to decide more of what for you? Is it you? 
do you really believe that you're not under the influence of the Audi commercial? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set the eternity in the hearts of men, but they cannot fathom what has happened from beginning to end. Do you understand the nature of that sentence? Eternity. Alpha, omega, beginning and end, gravity. Huge term. He's saying the nature of your desire to want more is an eternal thing. All this, it's ending. All it takes is me pulling a hammy when I'm jogging to realize that I'm 35 and I'm not 21 anymore. That this thing is falling apart. I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. I'm kidding. <laughs> It's all playing for the tie, guys, at this age. You're just, you're trying to hold back the advancement of body hair and fat. <laughs> it teaches us something about the nature of our desire. You and I want more. Lewis says it like this in The Weight of Glory. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in all of you. I'm trying to rip it open. Let yourself be ripped open this morning. Let the Lord rip it open. He talks about some of these things when we don't understand our desire and it, it morphs into greed for objects. He says this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it was only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only a scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Is it possible? Could you even be thankful for your greed this morning? Could you be thankful for it? Because it's, it's one of the great revealers of a deep and hidden good desire and truth. That if you and I could begin to understand the depth of our desire, the source of that desire and of that truth, which is the Lord himself, y'all. He has made you this way. If we could understand it and then begin to walk in it, that would be the thing that would keep us from the sinful abuse and manifestations of good God-given things like sex. St. Augustine, I feel like, hits the nail on the head when he says this, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Resting. It's another way of saying contentment. Contentment is the opposite of greed or covetousness. To rest, to be at peace with what you have, to be at peace with where you are. Which if I'm honest, in a lot of days, that feels impossible. And why? Is because I'm under the sway of the spell of the Audi commercial and what it represents. <coughs> Get more, get more. You're not full, you're not full, you're not full. Get more, get more, get more. 
Is contentment a mark of our lives? It's possible, guys. It's possible that rest and peace and contentment could become a mark of our lives. Paul talks about it in Philippians 4 that he says he's learned the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. You see, contentment for Paul, rest for Paul, wasn't an issue of circumstance, because it is for us, isn't it? When I get to this point in life, or when I get this thing, or when I get here, then I'll be able to rest. Contentment was an issue of circumstance. It was an issue of heart fixation. It was an issue of focus, of centrality of mind and heart. It was Paul's cornerstone. The gospel of Christ had become so central to this man's life that he could rest because he knew he had everything he wanted, even though he didn't know how to experience it all. It's important for us to go to the depth of this exposure. The power to put to death this sin requires going to these kind of depths. This is why he talks about idolatry. So let's talk about that for a second. I would encourage you, and I'm not gonna, I'm gonna kind of race through some of this. Um, if you wanna learn more about it, I think that sermon in Colossians 2 talks a lot about it. But I would encourage you to think of idolatry in this, in this way for our purposes this morning. Misplaced desire. That idolatry is misplaced desire. If you're in a small group here, I doubt when you would go hang out with one another <laughs> and you said to somebody, hey, how are things going? You're like, oh, it's a tough week. I'm like, oh, really? What's going on? Um, probably someone's not gonna look at you and say, well, I am just, I'm emotionally spent because I've been, I made this thing out of wood and I've been bowing to it all week and I'm just wrecked over that. I mean, <laughs> we laugh about it, but it's just, that's not, it's not really it, is it? Like, no, no one's confessing that. Although when my TV goes out and I spend three hours on my knees behind the boxes trying to get it all working again, maybe? You think about that one. I'm not really sure I want to admit that one quite yet, but uh, Tim Keller writes a lot of great things on this. A book called Counterfeit Gods. If you want something to read on this topic, I would encourage you to read it. But he says you can't confine idolatry to the literal bowing down before the images of false gods. It can be done internally in the soul and in the heart without being done externally and literally. This is what I'm, come on, come with me here right now. Of course, we're not making things out of wood and bowing down to them, but in our souls, in the privacy of our hearts, I am literally bowing down and worshiping created things all the time. He gives a great working definition. A counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy and your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Knee jerk. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. Ugh. Happiness, contentment, meaning in life, identity. Paul talks about this at length in Romans 1. 
23 and 25, he talks about two great exchanges, that we exchange the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man, birds and animals and reptiles, and he talks about we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Worship and serve created things rather than the creator. You see, Paul is inviting us, even greed, he's taking us deeper into our desire. He's saying that idolatry is much more than seeking out alternative means to satisfy your desire, the desire that we don't really understand, but that idolatry is a matter of God's glory, it's a matter of worship, and it's a matter of service. That when we make idols out of created things, and yes, I am suggesting this right now, anything can be an idol. (laughs) Absolutely anything under heaven can be made into an idol. We not only worship these things, and what that means functionally for you and I, it means I love these things, and they make me feel loved, and I put my trust and my hope in these things. So I worship them, but I obey them. I literally am enslaved to these things. I serve them. These created things, and they're good in and of themselves, just like Joel talked about, sex is good within the context of how God has made it. These created things, they not only become the objects of my heart and mind's continual pursuit, but they actually have rule over me. They control me, they are my functional master. I will do anything to keep and preserve them because they give me life. Paul is driving at this and he's driving hard and drive with me right now. He's saying that you and I have so misunderstood the depth of our desire and its source and origin that when we misunderstand it, when we don't understand its source, we have nothing left to do but take something, anything I can grab a hold of, you, you, it, whatever it is, I grab a hold of it and I make it an idol. I believe that it can actually satiate the desire that I have. And therefore, it becomes the center of my life. It becomes my sense of ultimate value. It becomes my peace. It becomes my confidence. The place out of which I move and groove and walk. Every relationship with a woman up until my wife got destroyed under the weight of this. that she could quench my desire. They all buckled under it. That I actually believed that a woman, a created being by God, beautiful and intended for good, could, could satiate the eternal desire that God has placed inside of me. And every one of them looked at me and said, I'm out. I can't live under that because I was never made to. I killed every relationship. And thank God I can talk about this now and I'm not killing my marriage all the time because I still do it. Because I get caught under the spell. Maybe she can do it for me today. Maybe a little more money. Maybe a little more fun. Maybe a little more free time. Maybe a little fill in the blank, guys. What are you crushing under the weight of your eternal desire? Two practical things. 
how do we put to death these idols? I'd suggest two things. These are very practical. Identification and replacement. Not just removal, replacement. This is not my idea. The idea, for me at least, first came through a sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection by Thomas Chalmers. That idols cannot simply be removed, they've got to be replaced. Something of actual, practical, greater desirability must come in and overtake the object that I've set my affections on. It's not simply good enough to remove it. I've got to replace it. If you find rotten food in your fridge, you don't just empty your fridge, you go get more food, right? Thomas Chalmers says it this way, but what cannot be thus destroyed may be dispossessed. One taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power, listen to this, as the reigning affection of the mind. This is why idolatry is misplaced desire. You can't just kill the desire for some other object. It's got to be attached to a capable object. Your desire can only be attached to the Lord. He's the only thing capable of quenching it. So here's some practical steps. I'm not going to go, I'm going to race through these four things real fast because they're in that sermon on Colossians 2. How do I identify them? I've said this through this microphone before. Your imagination, your money, your response to unanswered prayers and frustrated hopes, and your most uncontrollable emotions. If you do time with Jesus and ask those questions, where does my imagination go to effortlessly when nothing else is demanding its attention? Where does my money flow to effortlessly? How do I respond to unanswered prayers or frustrated hopes? Or what are my most uncontrollable emotions? If you dig into those things with the Lord, inevitably what you will find is something at the end of that sentence that you've attached an eternal desire to that cannot deliver. So that's identification. Let's talk just for a second about replacement, not just removal. The first thing is this, and I'd encourage you to read Psalm 119. You need to ask for help. That sounds like a very simple step and kind of like, really? But most of us don't do it. Most of us say, I can identify my idols and I can take care of them. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. That literally I need my eyes opened to see the wonder of who God is. Because Jeremiah 17.9 teaches me that my heart is deceitful above all things. That I can't even understand it. That if I go on the journey to unearth all of the idolatrous things in my life, I'll never get to the end of it. Only he can reveal those things. So we ask for help. Second thing is this, the word, scripture, must get FaceTime from you. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hebrews 4.12 talks about that the word is living and active. It's like a double-edged sword. It divides things. If you do not have a regular life in scripture, then be at ease because you shouldn't be experiencing much of this putting to death because you need scripture to do it. That should really encourage you in an odd way <laughs> because the Lord has given you his word to actually do the work for you. 
to guide you into the depth of all of this. And what happens when we ask for help and we begin to cultivate a real life in the word is this. I learn to take thoughts captive. Because you sit in front of a device called a television and music and a million other things, which are good things. They echo, they're images of what we really desire. There's a battle going on for your minds and your hearts all the time. Second Corinthians 10.5 talks about it. We demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. If you don't believe that when you watch that Audi commercial, that there is an actual battle going on against the knowledge of God, you're wrong. There's a war. <laughs> it's saying, set down the gospel and pick up this car because it will satisfy you. He says there, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. 2 Corinthians 9.13 says, obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. What does it say, guys? You are full in Christ. Your life is now hidden with him. Discover the depth of the treasure that you have in Jesus Christ and your idols will literally start falling off the table. You won't even have to remove them. So we ask for help. We lean into the word because it is the sword that dices these things up. And then we learn how to take these thoughts captive and we make them obedient to Christ. Do you want the spell to be broken? Do you want to keep living under the spell? of an undeliverable spell that cannot meet your desire, guys. So celebrate your greed today. It's awoken you to the truth of how much you really want. Seek the Lord, believing that he's the only one that can deliver on that. Let's pray. Man, Lord, I'm a master at this. I'm a master at falling under the wave of the spell. And it tastes good to me some days, Lord, uh, if I'm honest. It makes me feel the way I want to feel, Lord. And oftentimes, in your gentle love, uh, you even let me go long distances into those desires uh, and into that idolatry in, in order to wake me up. So, Father, I pray that you'd wake us up this morning. Lord, I pray that you would cast a different spell like Lewis talked about. That you would invite us into the journey of understanding the depth of our desire. And that you give us the power through your gospel to put to death all of these lesser things that I literally believe Jesus are going to deliver on the eternity that I was made for. We ask these things in your name. Amen.